0: Paul, Silas, and Timothy have been split up. After a rough situation in Thessalonica, Paul was shipped off to Athens. Paul has convinced some, even in the Areopagus Council, to come to Yahweh through Jesus. But now he's headed west, 51 or so miles, to an important city on a land bridge called Corinth. Welcome to Anakonosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview and the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Agin. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today, Paul arrives in Corinth. We turn to Luke's writing in Acts 18, verse one. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. If we recall, Paul was receiving some funding from Lydia and the Ecclesia in Philippi during his time in Thessalonica, um, mostly because the people in Thessalonica were um, not well-to-do, which we'll get to eventually. But now... He's in Corinth, and either the funds have completely run out, or he's supplementing them by making some money in the market again, selling tents. Now, the Corinthian market would be quite the experience. The city had two ports, being a land bridge, right? One facing a different part of the sea. It was like the Panama of Greece. But... It also was a land bridge connecting large landmasses of Macedonia. Thus, by land or by sea, Corinth was the ultimate trading destination. And the Corinthians had special products like textiles and olive oil, limestone. Their pottery was sold. Their art was famous. But unfortunately, people were sold there as well. In the first century, the city was run by Gallio, a brother of a Stoic philosopher, the Romans had largely rebuilt the city to be a trade center and a worship center for the Roman imperial cult. If Paul was getting anywhere west of Athens, he would have to cross through Corinth. This would be leaving the district of Macedonia and heading into Achaea, which is an area still part of modern Greece. So Paul meets this Jewish man from Rome named aquila and he has his wife priscilla and they two were tent makers and so they go into business together and they dwell together aquila was ejected from his homeland because emperor claudius had kicked all the jews out of rome which we can overlay with a historical fact paul wasn't just making tents though he was persuading as many Yahweh followers to recognize Jesus as the fulfillment of Yahweh's anointed one as possible, as well as talking to the Greeks. Verse 5 When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there, and he went to a house of a man named Titus Justus, who was a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. So the good news is that Silas and Timothy finally show up after missing the entire visit to Athens. And that does free up Paul to focus more on the mission than on the money. He was telling the news of the kingdom to the Jews And they became abusive in their rejection. And so he announced that in Corinth, he's now just going to focus on Gentiles. Ironically, they are more receptive of the workings of Yahweh, a God they're less familiar with. Paul receives hospitality of one religious man, though, Titus Justus. And another religious man and his family are also convinced before Paul moves on to the Gentiles. Teaching the word of God among them. That's by far his longest stay. And here we have Jesus talking to Paul in person again. Kind of. It's a vision. But I take it. And Jesus reassures Paul that Corinth will be safe. That he has his he has people there, which is kind of interesting. And with all that time spent, an Ecclesia is easily born. A messy, troubled, confused ecclesia, but an ecclesia nevertheless. And while there's much to unfold in Corinth, something else happens at this time. Paul works on a series of letters to his friends back in Thessalonica, the city he cannot legally return to. And it's not plainly stated in the letters that he wrote them from Corinth, But the way he writes about the circumstance and how he left Thessalonica implies that he wrote it from a place soon after and a place where Timothy was also, which isn't Athens, but would be Corinth, where he stays a good long while. And like the letter to the Galatians, almost all scholars believe Paul is responsible for the words in the letter. The letter we know as 1 Thessalonians can really be divided into two parts. Personal reflections, followed by the apostles' instructions. Now, the loudest theme in the letter is steadfastness in the light of Jesus' return. Paul's second missionary journey is believed to have spanned the years 49 to 52 CE or AD. So that's not long after Jesus ascended to the right hand of Yahweh in 33. And The followers are longing for his return. Now, at the time of this recording, it's still been 1,990 years. Has our longing waned or maybe has reality sunk in? In some of Paul's later letters, he takes a different posture on the timing of Jesus' return than he does in the letters to Thessalonica. And some scholars believe that Paul doesn't focus on this as much later on, or when he is older, because his anticipation wanes. The early apostles were pretty sure that Jesus would return in their lifetimes. This is something they might have even shared with one another and with outsiders. Our king is returning soon. It might have even been part of their gospel presentation. There was strong evidence that the early apostles preached the imminence of Jesus' return until about 62 to 63 A.D., And then any letter afterwards, they spoke of it like it would be a long way off. So why the change in tone? I believe this is connected loosely to a prophecy in Daniel 9 about the Messiah, and also a prophecy in Isaiah 7 and 12. Long story short, Daniel highlighted the 20s and 30s as a time of messianic fulfillment, so people were on edge looking for the king, looking for the anointed one. Historian Josephus says it was an ambiguous oracle. The Isaiah prophecy set the stage for a virgin birth, a child named Emmanuel, who would within 65 years conquer the Assyrian enemy. Now it had a double meaning where a young girl had a kid named Emmanuel and 65 years later fought in the time of Isaiah but the overlay would have the expectation that Jesus Emmanuel may overthrow their enemy within 65 years. Jesus born around 3 BC and so around 67 68 the occupiers haven't been overthrown And so when that comes and goes, Paul and the other apostles change their tone about Jesus' return. And Paul changes his advice on things like marrying and having kids in light of Jesus' now not so imminent return. The author of 2 Peter addresses the rising scrutiny in the church because Jesus had not returned. They write, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Later, stating that the Lord is not tardy, but that a day to him is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. In other words, he ain't coming back soon. And again, that was 1000 990 years ago. So, did Jesus fail? No. This was man's interpretation, not God's promise. The promise was not about when, but who. You do not need to know the time, you need to know the man. Now, the global church has mixed ideas when it comes to the nature of Jesus' return. Some believe that he returned already, and we're living in the after events. Some believe that Jesus will appear at the end of days to immediately usher in the merger of heaven and earth. And some believe in a secret rapture where the people of God are snatched up by Jesus who hovers over the earth for seven or three years of judgment before actually touching down. Now, we don't have to agree on how this is going to work, but we should agree that the second coming... The return of the king is a secure fact. That's going to be a part of this letter, and that's why I present that first. So now we go to 1 Thessalonians 1.1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So, it's from three authors, and it's believed that uh, Silvanus is Silas. Continuing in verse 2, We give thanks to God always for you all, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers Paul is thankful for them. It is impossible to see faith, hope, and love unless they are put into action. And the Thessalonican Ecclesia has done just that. These Thessalonican believers have a great reputation with believers through the Roman districts. They are full of the Spirit. They labor with love. They face affliction, such as the riot that Luke described in Acts. Paul says they're known for their hospitality, their repentance from idols, and waiting for Jesus who will deliver us from the wrath to come. Hospitality? Check. We saw Jason's family hosted Paul. Repentance from idols? Though not explicitly described in Acts, it's completely probable as Thessalonica was a polytheistic culture. Waiting for the king? Well, wait is the word anameno, which was an eager waiting, like a servant waiting for their wages. That is a lovely Christian virtue, eager waiting for Jesus. Not to burn thy neighbor, but to deliver thy neighbor from sin, pain, and death. The great thing about hope, or the hope we have, is that it isn't for today only, but also for tomorrow, and all the tomorrows there will ever be. It's so much better to have anticipation and hope than to have fear or dread. I remember hearing about the secret rapture almost every night at youth group growing up. I remember being molded to hope for it, but I also secretly hoped it wouldn't happen until I completed some tasks. Go to college, start a career, get married, lose my virginity. Oh, and I felt very guilty. For wanting those things over Jesus. In reality, the portrait of Jesus' return I was getting was just so weak that the things of this world looked preferable. My fellowship with fellow Christians was so conditional and fragile that other relationships looked more desirable. The reality for most of us most of the time is pushing Jesus' return out of mind. But the Thessalonians were examples of eagerly waiting. Now, did we catch the last line that Paul slipped in there? Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. What an Old Testament word. Here are the few times that Jesus used it in the Gospels. Towards the Pharisees, he said, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Jesus also warned of wrath that would befall his people leading up to the fall of Jerusalem. And finally, in this famous line, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's it. That's the only times Jesus spoke of it. Trust and obey, and you're free from the wrath of God. So Paul is essentially repeating Jesus here. But what is the wrath that Jesus is saving us from? Is it hell? Is it death? Is it the last days? Because depending on that answer, it changes things. And it really is too hard to tell from the context here. But from Jesus' context when saying it originally, it is running parallel with eternal life, as if the opposite of eternal life is the wrath of God. Now the logical opposite of life is death. And so it's fair to say that the wrath of God is death as well. Okay. The Thessalonican Ecclesia state was on shaky ground because they were afflicted, yet their status in front of Yahweh was secure. Death could not even shake them. That is the hope of the resurrection. As we continue to build our biblical worldview, we want to think about what in our minds needs renewed. Well, Paul was thankful for his fellow faithful believers. It might be a good change of mind for us to think of our brothers and sisters in the faith, no matter how faithful or unfaithful, no matter how estranged or common-minded with us, that we think of them with thankfulness. To be extremely thankful that Jesus saves everyone. Thank you for listening. Aniconosis is a project for anyone anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, Paul will shift to reflection in his letter to the Ecclesia of Thessalonica.